Well, good afternoon. Um, gives me great pleasure to introduce Darren Stelman, which to a lot of you doesn't need introduction. Darren has come out of the field as a default student at a very advanced stage in his fieldwork. He came to ISCO in 2009 in the MSc Medical Anthropology Program. He worked as a field worker in disaster relief and medical humanitarian emergency for the previous decade. Um, studied as a uh, in anthropology as an undergraduate in Canada before undertaking his career, um, which he spent mostly with uh, Vincent Saint Frontier as a field program manager in West Africa, but also many, many other places. Um, so in 2012, he came back uh, uh, to, uh, to do his DPhil, and uh, his thesis focuses on the numbers, knowledge, and social understandings of disaster. So in particular, nutrition in complex emergencies. So the dynamics is in the details. No devils. Thanks, Stanley. Um, well, in a famous paper uh, that was written nearly 20 years ago, uh, which has required reading for many of you in this room, uh, Mervyn Susser asked, does risk factor epidemiology put epidemiology at risk? And the central concern with this paper was um, asking the question of whether a dominant paradigm of population health, that is the quantification of individual risk, uh, well, an extraordinarily powerful interpretive device actually leads to the marginalization or obscuring of other ways of knowing and uh, other key factors in human health, such as the role of, of the environment and the social. And so in that spirit, I want to examine nutritional anthropometry, which is um, the practice of me uh, measurement for nutritional purposes, and specifically the art or the science of using body measurements to gauge risk to the individual. So body measurements as a proxy for risk. Uh, the social life of weights and measures has been a long-standing interest in this seminar series, uh, and a lot of speakers have, have talked about it, particularly the variability of, uh, of bodies and the variability of circumstances and how these can either be subsumed within metrics or alternately can be revealed by metrics. And the notion of body measurement as a proxy for risk has been extensively discussed in regards to obesity, but also on the flip side, it's been discussed in regards uh, to undernutrition as well. And so to position this paper along that spectrum, I want to put it in juxtaposition or, or uh, in dialogue with a paper of a colleague of mine, or of ours, Emily Gates-Door, who spoke here last year in the same seminar series. And she's done work on uh, public health uh, approaches to obesity in Guatemala. And uh, in particular, her presentation here in her recent chapter called The Mismeasure of Obesity show a mismatch between expectations of public health practitioners and public health measurements uh, and the patient's definitions of what makes their own health. And so in her work, we get the sense that public health approaches to obesity are missing the individual, and they're missing, um, missing the environment that's obscured by the metrics. So I hope to demonstrate that what happens on one side, what she's demonstrated for obesity, also holds true for undernutrition. Um, and that uh, when both the practitioner and the patient are together and approach these issues from different uh, standpoints, you can have puzzlement and ambiguity, but you can also have life-changing consequences for good or ill. Weights and measures are empirical, they're factual, and they're extremely powerful. Uh, they're a clinical tool for diagnosis and treatment, and they give a comparative 
reading of a situation. So an aid worker can hold up two numbers of two populations side by side and say roughly, comparatively, where aid is needed more. Measures are really good at doing one thing, and that's measuring weight, height, volume, depth. All of those things uh, are unambiguously what they do. But there's another thing that they do, and it becomes more problematic when, when that happens, and that's that measures are attributed with social meaning beyond the thing that they were intended to measure. So if you want an example of that, you can think of the calorie and all the moral discourse around calories in our own society. So ultimately, the social expectation of what the metric is intended to measure is a very different thing than the unit of measurement itself. In my study, degrees of starvation and risk of imminent death are measured in millimeters and grams. The humble millimeters of a colored measuring tape, and I've brought a couple of these along. The humble millimeters of a colored measuring tape are imbued with moral meaning. Perhaps one of the key reasons that measures work is because they're able to give us an accurate reading of an individual's risk and configure a pathway for treatment. But they're not a substitute for uh, the clinical eye, and they're not infallible. And nor do they tell the whole story, the story of a lived experience. So this is a short ethnographic portrait of that. It's a short ethnographic portrait of what happens when this happens in, in practice. I should say before I begin that it's not in any way intended to discredit the measures that are used in measuring malnutrition, nor is it an attempt to discredit practitioners or, or patients who are engaged in, in the practice of seeking care for malnutrition. It starts from the presumption that everybody works on good faith, but when people start with different assumptions and come to things from different directions, there can be a lot of confusion that happens as a result. So, my research questions were driven as my own experiences as an aid worker. I spent 10 years with MSF, or Médecins Sans Frontières, which uh, is a medical organization. I was a frontline field manager with them, working in projects in Africa and, and South Asia. Um, and my experience there left me with a few scars, uh, certainly a novel gut bacteria, and a lot of questions. And some of those questions focused around the issue of clarity. How do you get clarity on action, clarity on motives, and uh, clarity on means within a complex emergency? One of the ways that we get clarity is through numbers. Uh, in a world of complex emergencies where we encounter vast human suffering, numbers can offer comfort and an argument for action because they're largely apolitical, they're verifiable, and they're comparable. And so we can see the situation is worse or better based on the, on the intervention of numbers. So my research topic was of enough interest to my former colleagues in MSF that they uh, accepted us to negotiate a research agreement that gave me access to their field sites uh, in South Sudan. And so with the recent hostilities there, this research took place against that background. But I was able to spend six months there, which was enough to observe uh, the agency's response to the displacement and subsequent malnutrition that resulted uh, from the conflict. And perhaps the site most impacted, one of the sites most impacted uh, was the site where I ended up spending much of my time, and that was the town of Lear in Unity State. The, the town and the MSF hospital were largely destroyed in the conflict, and the local, local people lost 
uh, cattle and most of their food stocks and seeds when they were displaced by the fighting. They were forced to shelter for weeks in the surrounding marshland. And as the front line moved away from there, the people came back out of the swamps to their homes, which had been burnt, to find nothing there, basically. And so the community of Lair, which was already in a severe food crisis, was thrust into a situation of, of even more severe crisis. Uh, following these reports, MSF, of course, returned uh, to the community and the site of their burned hospital. And uh, therapeutic feeding had always been a major component of the program here, which was 25 years old. Um, but now they were faced uh, with an overwhelming problem, an overwhelming situation of mass malnutrition. I had many guides on my ethnographic journey, but I'm going to focus on this presentation in just one particular aid manager, and that was a voluble German nurse who I've named Heiko. Uh, obviously all the names are pseudonyms. He was a sturdy, bald-shaven man around 50, and he was famous in there for his puppet companion, Mr. Smith, who gave the morning health education to the patient mothers at the feeding center. Heiko was the kind of informant that ethnographers hoped for. Like ethnographers himself, Heiko was simultaneously an outsider and an insider. A cheerful eccentric, as evidenced among other things by the puppet, Mr. Smith, Heiko was also a thoughtful, energetic professional. He could explain program minutiae, but was equally able to see and describe the work in a broader context. His experience, skill, and quirky humor made him appreciated on the team. And his work as the in-charge of the outpatient feeding center, or the ATFC, the Ambulatory Therapeutic Feeding Center, was central to my own. He was proud of his program, and he was eager to talk about it. The ATFC was an outpatient center where young children came to be assessed for acute malnutrition. And then they were given this therapeutic food to consume at home. Now, this miracle food is a nutrient-dense um, peanut pap, and it's got the lovely name of Plumpy Nut. Uh, it's a very sweet, very sticky type of uh, peanut butter solution. It's designed specifically to be very portable and very easy to be deployed in, in emergency situations. It's designed specifically for people, especially young children, recovering from acute malnutrition. So Heiko's job as the in-charge was to supervise the medical assessment of children as they entered this center and the distribution of the plumpy nut as they left it on an outpatient basis. And this was no easy task. Heiko was among the first expatriates to return to Lear in the wake of the conflict, and MSF returned to their hospital, which had been almost completely destroyed. Luckily, the ATFC was 100 meters distant from the main hospital, and the compound was made of brick and mortar. So the fires that took most of the hospital and the town had spared this place. That was fortunate because the program was overwhelmed with patients <coughs> in the first weeks. The team enrolled 800 patients on the first day of services, and hundreds more would follow in subsequent weeks. It fell to the nurse in charge, who is Heiko, uh, to make sense of this overwhelm. Heiko would prove to be well fitted to the job. He would make light of his German flair for organization, but he applied the rules of efficient operations to the ATFC. The ATFC should run like a machine, he insisted, and the machine would become the metaphor he used with his staff to refer to the program. How is the machine? Is the machine running, he would ask. Yes, the machine is running, the staff would, uh, would reply. Each person was a part of the machine and each had a role within the machine. And the smooth operation of the, of the machine was everybody's job. Schedules and routines were essential. 
along with James, the senior New Air ATSC clinician, Heiko spent time in each unit observing and coaching and adjusting. Much of the team was new, having been hired after fleeing to Lear from other parts of the country, but they learned quickly. The MSF protocols were simple and straightforward to enact. As might be expected, the machine encompassed not only staff roles and responsibilities, but the physical layout of the facility as well. There was an entry and reception area, a weighing and measuring area, consultation rooms and a distribution point. None of this was immediately obvious. Unlike hospitals in the UK, there were no bright colored signs, arrows or dotted lines to point the way. Amid a cluster of ramshackle buildings, a tent, two shipping containers, and several huts built of brick or cinder block, the staff would orient new arrivals and insist that they follow a specific pathway to care, which you see on this sketchy map I've drawn. Stragglers would be questioned and oriented. I was mildly disoriented to see new air mothers and children queuing in the middle of empty space as if waiting for a London bus. They've learned that this is the quickest way to get through, Heiko informed me. The dictates of the machine extended to patients as well. I paid my very first visit to Lair on a bright morning of June 2014. I walked with Mark, who was the MSF head of mission or the country manager, the, the highest official of the organization in the country. Mark was returning to Lair for the first time after the destruction, and he was in turn followed by a French film camera crew shooting a documentary. And we found the ATFC busy, but not overcrowded. About 150 mothers, accompanied by approximately twice that number of children, assembled in an orderly way and entered the wait by the waiting room snake, which is an adjustable rope barrier like you see at airport check-in counters, only made of nylon rope. The group was clearly accustomed to the process. They filed in and sat expectantly on reed mats, awaiting the health education messages that would be followed by the instruction to proceed and collect the plumpy nut. Uh, the media men filmed Heiko as he used Mr. Smith, the large marionette, to deliver the health education messages. Heiko, through Smith, through the matronly translator, sang songs about hand washing. The mothers laughed and sang and clapped along. The media crew asked that the last chorus be repeated so they could set up to get another shot. The camera films the white man with his puppet working through a translator with mothers seated like school children in a rope channel. Mark and I looked on with big smiles, arms folded, looming like benign overseers. I was distinctly uncomfortable, and so my smile was forced. Beside me, Mark, who was incidentally also a recovering academic, must have been uncomfortable too, because he leaned over and whispered to me the thing that I was thinking. He gestured to the stick cage waiting room and the rope barrier preventing the mother's exit. It really is like a prison, he whispered. I nodded and replied that Foucault had a lot to say about clinics and prisons. Mark laughed. I don't know, do I have time for the helicopter in yet? It's really nice. Well, two o'clock is our cutoff. Okay, I'll go quickly. <laughs> Sometime later, as the plumpy nut distribution was happening, a UN MI8 helicopter slowly approached the town and hovered looking for a landing spot. I went to the fence to watch the magnificent beast for a time, and the French cameraman happily scampered out of the field to film the landing. The crew must have spotted us and decided that their aid cargo was destined for our facility, when it was actually for an agency up the road. 
The pilots flew in low and close and made their descent directly in front of the ATFC, only about 10 or 15 meters from the gate. Uh, the stick building shook and threatened to blow down, and I had a nightmare vision of sharp metal roofing sheets flying off the roof and tumbling through the ATFC. The animals scattered and, and dust went flying, and I retreated further into the center of the compound to shelter from the wind. In the whirl of dust and noise, Mark approached me and banged his pointed finger against his head, shouting, What is he doing? Is he fucking crazy? And I shrugged my shoulders and I said, I don't know. But all around us, the mothers and the children were perfectly calm. Uh, in the dust, some of them had sheltered under their departures, and a few turned their necks to watch with casual disinterest. But most of them ignored it. No one broke line and no one moved. I was a bit bewildered that the mothers could be so accustomed to an aid machine that a 10-ton actual flying aid machine could sit down in the middle of them, and this would be their response. So these little ethnographic moments demonstrate at least two important points for this paper. First, despite the comparatively minimalist infrastructure, the ATFC demonstrated a rational and efficient technocratic administration of medicine. The stick buildings and the rope uh, barriers appeared res uh, rudimentary, but from these round circle structures, one might mis they make a mistake of taking MSF to be a shoestring NGO of limited resources. But this is not the case. While the clinical infrastructure appears minimal, what is not visible is the enormous transcontinental apparatus, the network of technology, <coughs> knowledge and values, that made it possible to assemble an airlift hundreds of thousands of sachets of plumpy nut to layer in the first place. The second highlight from the vignette is that whether or not local people were aware of the transnational machinery that had deposited the feeding center in the middle of Lair, they were certainly accustomed to it. But habituation doesn't spontaneously make a London bus queue appear in Lair. This was also part of the work of the machine. Measurements of malnutrition work on the basis of comparison of patients uh, to measurements of a reference population. The severity of illness can at least partially be determined by where the individual patient sits on the measures in relation to the average. I'll hand this in once. <coughs> in the so-called emergency setting, MSF uses two technologies to measure malnutrition. One of these is the MUAC, and the other is the weight for height board. Patients can also be admitted on the basis of a clinical diagnosis, usually in the form of bilateral edema or kwashiorkor. Of these two technologies, the MUAC tape, which is traveling around the room now, is perhaps more iconic, and in the eyes of many practitioners, it's the more robust. MUAC stands for Measure of Mid-Upper Arm Circumference, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Using a measuring tape, uh, a clinician measures the circumference of the child's upper middle arm. Barring any anatomical or syndromic complication, the measure accounts for the presence and the development of fat and muscle, thus forming a reliable gauge of nutritional status. MUAC measurement requires the very simplest of technology, that's a measuring tape, and then a piece of paper and a pen. The measures can be taken in the middle of the street if needed, and they give an instant and accurate assessment of the individual child's level of nutritional risk, or at least their nutritional status. With a modicum of organizational skill, aid workers can measure hundreds of children in a single day. As I said, on the first day in Lair, 
The team enrolled over 800 children in the program. You can use a plain tailor's tape, but MUAC bands today, and for many years, have been printed in colored red, yellow, and green scales. And this reduces the possibility of error in reading the numbers. It's a traffic light scheme. Yes. The second technique, which is weight for height measurement, is slightly more complicated and requires a more organized routine, but it's still minimalist by the standards of biomedicine. A child is measured for length while standing or lying against a height board, and they're weighed on a salter scale, which is a robust hanging hook of the type that you use to uh, weigh luggage. The child's height and weight are compared against charts that, specific to age and gender, tell what the length and weight of an average child should be, an average healthy child, anywhere in the world. And then the child in front of us is graded in terms of their relation to that scale. And this is the normal bell curve. The further from the statistical norm that they are in terms of standard deviations, the more the, uh, severe the child's condition. And because MSF focused only on the most severely malnourished, they were looking at children of a z-score of minus three as a minimum entry point. That's to say three deviations from the norm. Or on the MUAC band, what would be read in the MUAC. These measurements are used almost exclusively for children under the age of five, and there are several reasons for this. First, for the initial five years of life, childhood growth rates in physiology remain fairly uniform across the globe, where after biocultural and environmental factors start to play a greater role. Thus, more than any other age group, young children can be reliably measured against a standard reference population. And second, because their nutritional needs are proportionately lower, and their, or nutritional needs are greater and their uh, energy reserves are proportionately lower, young children are more vulnerable to undernutrition, which means that children under five are a nutritional bellwether. They're the first to be affected by food short shortage, and their status is a good indicator of the amount of food and the general nutritional status of the population in general. So the power of MUAC and the Z-score is twofold. First, they lend themselves to robust protocols that can be deployed anywhere in the world with minimal equipment and minimal training. And second, they're life-saving measures. It's a safe bet, reasonably, that without any intervention, a child in red MUAC or on a Z-score minus four is going to die in the near future. And this is the demographic that MSF focuses on. It's unambiguous and it's apolitical. Who could be against saving this child's life? Thus, along with similarly standardized process, uh, processes and protocols in basic medicine, field logistics, and human resources, these techniques form a part of what Peter Redfield has called MSF's humanitarian kit, a portable map of frontline medicine that enable MSF's highly mobile response. While the field hospitals are the central feature of the media and promotional materials, there's a vast and unseen apparatus behind the kit, and every specialty and practice within the organization has its own in-house advisors and consultants. MSF protocols are based on and in times elaborate upon global standards established by the WHO and other groups. And the aim is to ensure that MSF treatment in remote places like Glear is done according to the highest standards uh, of practice possible. All that said, there are still holes in the evidence, and standards are just that. Standards, which is to say norms, uh, expectations, or statistical averages. And MSF works in what we could call a distinctly non-normative environment. Places where experience frequently falls outside the standards and expectations 
modern of contemporary medicine. <clears throat> there are a wide range of bodies and experiences that are not counted as the norm, but that may be normal. It's the case everywhere, but it's particularly the case in complex emergencies. These things are local normalities and local things that are normal for that context or that place or that time. Normal things may not be accounted for in averages. And the next ethnographic vignette helps to illustrate that point. Back at the ATFC on a Friday. It's slow in the morning because there was a heavy rain last night, uh, which means that people normally don't come very early, Heiko informs me. It's very muddy. So Heiko says, although it'll be a slow day, we'll still see uh, over 200 patients. But they'll mostly be patients of z-score 3, he says, not z-score minus 4. And that's a good thing, because that's what we've been seeing lately, and it means that the situation is stabilizing somewhat. Even those coming from very far away, he tells me, are z-score minus 3. So they also are not too badly off compared to what we were seeing before. So that indicates a more stable situation in further outlying areas, he says. So he's reading the, with the statistics, he's reading the situation in the environment. I lean against the wall sketching buildings as Heiko speaks to another nurse. We're watching the patients and their mothers come to the wake for height measuring room. A small lot of children come from registration, accompanied by two mothers. Both women have the characteristic new air build, long and lean and athletic. Among the children, I spot a tall child that must be a caretaker or sibling, rather than a patient. Or so I think, until her mother tells her to remove her frock for the weighing scale. The girl has knobby knees and thin legs. She's lean, but not skinny, and otherwise appears healthy and alert with bright eyes and skin. Unlike many of the younger children, her clothes are clean, there are no flies around her, she's not covered in dust, and her nose doesn't run. And she strikes me as very tall. She looks to be six or seven years old, where the MSF cutoff age for ATFP is five years. I point this patient out to Heiko, she looks to be more than five years old, I say. Yes, perhaps, he says, but it's sometimes difficult to tell. The children can be very tall for their age. Let's call James and see what he thinks, says Heiko. So James, the new air ATFC supervisor, joins us and agrees. She could be five or six. No way to tell except maybe the teeth. We wait as the girl is uh, weighed and measured for height. James assists the measurers. How old is the child, we ask the measurer to ask the mother. The question and answer are sequentially related. Three or four years, comes the answer. Heiko doesn't succeed to stifle a laugh of disbelief. We look at the girl's registration card. It's not a printed card, but a hand-drawn chart, made in pen because the ATFP have been awaiting more cards for weeks. Let's call her Najuma, which literally translated from the New Air means Girl Friday. She's registered as five years old on the card. Her weight was 14.2 kilograms on the 4th of July, which is registration, 14.8 kilograms on the 11th of July, and 15.8 kilograms today, the 25th of July. A total of 1.6 kilograms gained in 21 days. That seems positive, but we don't know for sure. In the three weeks since she joined the program, she's grown a half a centimeter. The old target weight no longer applies, so we need to consult the weight for height protocol in the wait for height chart in the protocol. Gathering around the chart, we see that the target weight has increased to beyond 17 kilograms. And there you are, says Heiko. We can keep her feeding her, and she'll keep growing, 
but because of her body structure, will never reach the target weight. We can keep her in the program till mid-2015, he says, and she won't reach the target weight. Najuma leans against her mother's skirts, timid at all the attention. Her mother holds her shoulders. Both females are different sized versions of the other. Her mother stands around six foot tall. Well, let's see her teeth, says James, and he lifts apart Najuma's lips to inspect her teeth. Her teeth are all there, bright white and healthy. They look much like milk teeth. From six to seven, we would expect the child to start losing the milk teeth, says James. So she's probably somewhere around late five. I ask permission to follow the mother and child to the consultants. Apart from complaints of a fever at night, the child is healthy with no diarrhea and a good appetite. So what to do with Najuma? Heiko and James explain what will happen. She's healthy, but in the numbers, she'll be categorized as a non-responder. Since given her build, she'll never gain enough weight to reach the target weight for height. They agree that she should stay in the program for another two weeks, and then, in the absence of weight loss or serious morbidity, they'll discharge her as a non-responder. The majority of the malnourished children in the program are between the ages of six months and three years. Najuma is older than the majority, but she's not unusual. Heiko explains that childhood weight for height measures become increasingly unreliable around the age of five, as children's growth rates begin to vary widely. Add to this the questionable the questionable the questionability of a normative global standard to Nuer body structure. Nuer people vary in height, but they can be exceedingly tall. Um, six feet, over six feet for men, if not the norm, is certainly extremely common. And women too usually can approach or exceed six feet. So all Nuer people tend towards slimness. It's partly a function of height, partly genetics, and partly diet, and partly the pastoral lifestyle that sees them do a lot of walking. And this skews the rate of malnutrition because quite healthy children like Najuma, probably around five but tall for her age, show on the charts as acutely malnourished, as if she were starving. Heiko explains to me that Najuma probably is undernourished, along with nearly every other child and adult in the vicinity. But is she dangerously undernourished, or is she just growing fast and in line with new air growth patterns, which tend to confound the global norm? Heiko asks, so in the end, what really is malnourished? Where does it start? And what do we need to respect with regard to ethnic group? What can MSF do in this case where the numbers say no, but the yes, but the practitioner's sensibility says no? And what about the cases that the practitioner doesn't see, but only reads in the data? Heiko re-emphasizes his point. In any intervention, he says, there are the dynamics in the details, changing sometimes the direction. Heiko and I carried on this discussion over several days in several such cases. One evening, Heiko returns to the MSF office and calls to me from the water filter in the dining room. He has stories for me. So I sit on the office steps in the fading sunlight and he joins me with a big cup of water in his hands. He drinks deeply. Today we had a girl of 12 year old come to the ATFC from a dock 25 kilometers distant, he says. She was carrying the child of one year old and came with a blue card for a three-year-old. Obviously, Heiko explains, a one-year-old presented with the registration card of a three-year-old make for wildly different height and weight measurements. They quizzed the girl, and she relented. The mother had told the girl, take the child and make the best of it. See what you can get from MSF. 
Thus, the 12-year-old walked 25 kilometers with the baby in arms on the chance that they could get something out of the, the institution. Yesterday, Eichel says, there were two cases where they referred two children to the inpatient overnight feeding center, and the two mothers refused because they have children at home that they needed to care for. Their babies were acutely ill, but they couldn't manage a hospital admission. These stories are typical, says Heiko. Over the month, you'll find 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 cases like this. Heiko explains to me, there are also micro-reasons why hunger and malnutrition take place. Each one is unique, but there are so many of them. When you think what these must amount to in the aggregate, you get a picture of how the numbers can't tell the whole story. He returns to his opening vignette. So we sent this girl home, he says. The 12-year-old went back to a doc with nothing from MSF. Because we could not admit the child based on any criteria, the baby was healthy, and because for legal children's, no re legal reasons, no children can admit children. A 12-year-old can't make a decision for referral or give instructions on how to take a prescription. Anyway, were we to give plumping up to a child caretaker, Hako continues, the child isn't three minutes out of the gate and the other starts eating the plumpy nut. And they tell this to you straight. The mothers will tell us it's one for the mother, one for the other children, and one for the patient. The mothers are tired, they're expected to give birth to so many children and work in the fields and attend aid distributions, and they have no time. So this prepackaged therapeutic food is labor-saving. Heiko's on a roll now, and tired after a long day of letting off steam. He continues talking faster than I can take down notes and quotes. I've got a bunch of more notes and quotes, but I'll skip them. Maybe we can share them at lunch. So there are stories all around, he concludes. They might not be important in detail, but they pile up. He says, he says that these stories go into the other category of the statistics. If you think there are 8 million people in this country and half of them are children under 16, and if even 5% of the cases are like this, then how can you tell what the situation really is? These anomalous cases, which weren't really all that anomalous, were referred to by some practitioners as social problems. Social problems were local realities that the science of clinical numbers could reveal and insinuate, but not penetrate. Such anomalies were perhaps visible in the graph or statistics, but could only be explained with clinical history and managed with social intervention. This part of the job was acknowledged as essential. There were individuals and teams to undertake such social activities, like patient counseling and defaulter tracing. There was no doubt of the role that the social played. It just couldn't be measured in numbers. Depending on prevalence, social problems could greatly affect other numbers, potentially, but rarely, rendering statistics invalid. Individual practitioners can see these anomalies in numbers and sometimes explain or rectify them. The machine, the institution itself, governed by numbers, cannot see them and can be disrupted by errors in the data. Thus, at all levels of the hierarchy, from the bedside to the headquarters, medical supervisors reviewed tables of data to read the narrative in the numbers and interpret them in a format that would be digestible for the machine, governed as it was by spreadsheet graphs and standard indicators. At her UBVO seminar last year, Emily Yates-Dorr argued that the anthropology of medicine and the anthropology of health are two different studies since what makes for good medical practice does not always make for good health, at least not good health as health might be conceived of by the patient. What was true for her study of obesity also holds true on the other end of the spectrum. As in the case of Najuma, 
One can be starving on paper, but comparatively healthy in body. Or taken from perspective, another perspective, one can be healthy on paper, healthy by all measures, and yet live in existentially precarious circumstances, as the one-year-old carried 25 kilometers by a 12-year-old sister. Most of the children of Lear, even if healthy on paper, live in similarly precarious circumstances. Weights and measures have extraordinary power. This simplistic plastic-colored measuring tape, when seen, with, when seen with expert eyes and worked into data tables, has the power to predict famine. This power functions in several ways. Weights and measure can foreground the individual, plucking them out of the everyday messy life to set them against a blank white canvas uh, where they can be statistically compared against a mean. How they measure up determines their eligibility for care. Weights and measures can also obscure the individual or aggregate them into a larger group that allows for insight into population dynamics, if not the individual situation. What weights and measures do with acuity, do not do with acuity rather, at least for now, is tell us about the home, the village, the environment, and the lived experience, the so-called social that social problems entail. Skilled practitioners familiar with the setting can read the environment from the numbers, but their ability to affect social problems is constrained within the boundaries of a technocracy of care governed by numbers. And there's a lot to be said about this. I hope we can discuss some of it in the question time. Uh, and I hope in the future I can write a whole chapter on how practitioners read the environment into statistics. And it's also important to note that there are a lot of researchers working today uh, on this same problem, trying to bring the lived environment into statistics. And Thomas Leatherman and Nancy Krieger come to mind uh, in that field. Those techniques are gradually coming to be used in uh, complex emergencies such as LAIR. However, from my experience, MSF seems quite reticent and quite slow at times to adopt such techniques. Other agencies often uh, run to do food security surveys or household uh, surveys with enthusiasm, but MSF is more slow and reticent to embrace these activities, mainly because the findings would not fundamentally change MSF's response, which is configured almost exclusively around crude mortality rates and severe medical malnutrition, that's acute starvation, rather than undernourishment. So the findings, if you're doing a household survey, you're not in an area with acute crude mortality to begin with. And also, the findings from such surveys would impel entry into debates over food security and moderate malnutrition that would carry MSF away from the sphere of life-saving activities to implicate them in long-term programs, and importantly, in politics. For many people in MSF, a number, like clinical medicine itself, is meant to be neutral and outside politics, not yet another slippery slope back into politics. The practice of numbers and medicine uh, are techniques used to define a neutral space, a hospital space, as a bulwark against the outside world, with its war and hunger. Inside the machine, there's comparative calm and comparative order, and rationality and the assurance of a well-run technocracy. Once a patient or practitioner steps beyond the boundaries of the machine, things become less certain. These are boundaries not only of physical space, but also of numerical dimensions. On approaching them, as Najuma did, the dynamics and the details become evident. The boundary may be imagined like the lines of transit around the ATFC, perhaps because they define something limitless and chimerical. 
Our pursuit of health is never ending. As Peter Redfield noted in his book on NSF, one can never have too much health. And as Mark, the head of mission, would frequently comment on NSF's work in South Sudan, no matter how much we are doing, we can never do enough. So I'll end it there, but I've put some questions on the board to maybe, these are questions I'm grappling with that we can spark a discussion with. Well, thank you very much, Daryl.